Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Holyrood magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Holyrood magazine. Yes, it's going to be great, and we're going to get, we're going to get this done, and we're going to have a vaccine, uh, uh, and then he will sort of slow down, and all that, uh, and then sometimes there's the thing where it's almost like he's got two thoughts in mind, or it's like he's gone into a room and forgotten what he's gone in for, and he can't quite, and he'll often do this with acronyms, okay, I, mean, I want to pay tribute to our brilliant uh, national NHS, the European You'd have thought, wouldn't you, that having faced this kind of thing, that we might be thinking differently about how we create vaccines, how we get rid of the inequality around health, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Somebody's going to make a lot of money out of this. I think that would be a tremendous breach of your of your private life if a politician started telling you how to dress. There is no way I definitely won that election, and I think we need to find every bit of electoral fraud. Okay, first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That is a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I have a very specific Good Week this week, um, which you can possibly guess. It's a very good week for us because we have been shortlisted for uh, Best Podcast at the PPA Magazine Awards and lots of other shortlistings as well. That's great news. Yeah, the annual Magazine Awards in Scotland. I was really delighted yesterday. We've had 13... um, shortlisted in 13 nominations uh, so yourself Gemma and Jenny all shortlisted for feature writer of the year mm-hmm. um, you and me shortlisted against yeah. each other for columnist of the year I'm glad it'll be a virtual ceremony this year so I don't have to hide from you in case I want it I know but actually yeah really pleased that we've been shortlisted it's actually for the for new podcast of the year Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, good work. I and, think well deserved, know. frankly. <laughs> I actually, I've thought we, we deserved a podcast award for a long time, even yeah. before well, we had a podcast. I felt it was it was fair. And it, you know, I think like many other companies, we've done things that we've always wanted to do, but actually, the virus, the pandemic, lockdown meant that we've accelerated those plans, and the podcast has been one of those things. So, mm-hmm. good work all round. Yeah, but also, I want the award. I yeah, of course you want the award. award. Yeah. The award goes on the company sideboard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at some awards just now, actually. We have yeah. many. We have many. Okay, yeah, so, so I've, anyway, I've, good week for us. Enough, enough self-indulgence. Yeah, I've got a less uh, self-obsessed one, actually. This is, this is more for the good of mankind, um, which is obviously what I, I do everything for. Um, yeah, the good news this week is there is the prospect of a working vaccine against uh, coronavirus with yep. something like a 90% success rate or possibly a little bit higher, which is expected fairly soon. So that is obviously good news. Yeah, I think, uh, do you know, actually, I felt a little bit of a spring in my step this morning. Uh, I, that, I thought that I was cy- that. <laughs> that was cycling. So actually, it's probably quite dangerous having a spring in your step when you're That's cycling. Um, but yeah, the, the news that um, Pfizer, um, the drug trials are showing a 90% success rate for a vaccine is good news, but obviously there's still various hurdles to go through. And I suppose what was interesting was listening to Matt Hancock this morning because um, 
The government haven't been exactly slow to be welcoming all kinds of advances and perhaps being a bit premature about good news. But I thought he was quite low key. Um, and he, he was talking about um, the tests that still need to show its efficacy and its success rate and whether or not it would stop you getting passing on the vaccine, uh, passing on um, the virus, even if mm. you'd had the vaccine. So there's still lots of hurdles to go through. But I think generally people must feel it's the start of some good news yeah um, and they're talking about potentially rolling this out uh, you know among certain groups by the start of uh, December yeah so possibly a, a return to some sort of normality by the spring in a way um, yeah that looks possible I mean I, I suspect life will never be the same again Liam I mean I do feel things like social distancing, people recognising that they need to wash their hands, which perhaps they should have recognised before this. Um, I think there will be things that have changed about the way we operate. Yeah. But my goodness, it would be wonderful if we did have a vaccine. Well, I suppose the concern as well, you know, there's the piece in the last magazine, the interview with Ian Boyd, one of the points he made was, um, I mean, people had expected this to happen for a very long time and other things like this will happen. And we can't really rely on getting a vaccine every time. It no. could take a really long time and you could be dealing with a far more deadly disease than, than COVID, actually. Yeah, God, you're a right really... voice of gloom, aren't you? All right, all right. I'll be, I'll be more. I mean, what, what, would be the, what would be the first thing that you would do if you were impervious to coronavirus, Mandy? What would you? There's, there's probably a serious answer and a less serious answer. I mean, I, the thing I was going to say to you is that the thing that bothered me most about the, the news of a vaccine or the success of a vaccine was it was accompanied by the fact that the share price had gone through the roof. Mm. So, And it just reminds you that even when it comes to a global disaster like a pandemic of this nature, it's still about the money. It's still about the shares and... Mm. Um, I, you'd have thought, wouldn't you, that having faced this kind of thing, that we might be thinking differently about how we create vaccines, how we get rid of the inequality around health. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Somebody's mm. going to make a lot of money out of this. Um, on the question of what I would do, mm -hmm. um, so there's a there's a business answer, which is, my goodness, I would start planning all our events uh, for face-to-face -face immediately again. Um, that that was what I was thinking too. <laughs> that was my first thought. I, was, I thought, what about the business? What about the business? What about the business? <laughs> we've, we've got a big um, event planned for March, a big parliamentary political awards. Uh, it's called End of an Era, and it's, it'll be celebrating the full parliament from 2016 to 2020. I'm desperate for that to happen. I think everybody needs to have some kind of reprieve from what we've had over the last seven months. So I would hope that we could plan for that. Mm -hmm. On a personal level, I really want to hug my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. And, I, nice, and I think it's, um, you know, it feels a bit strange to feel uncomfortable touching your loved ones at the moment. Mm. Yeah, it might take a little time for that to pass, actually, that, that kind of weirdness around other people. Yeah, I, I mean, I know some people that are very glad of that. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So what would you do? No, I'd just, I'd go on holiday. I'd just yeah. swan around the south of Europe, you know, touching stuff. <laughs> touching people. <laughs> yeah, I'd get like, I'd get cheap flights somewhere. I'd go to the south of Spain or, I don't know, somewhere in Italy, maybe, and just yeah. go around touching people's faces. Yeah. Which is actually why they banned me from their last. Yeah, exactly. 
So, Matt, I think probably every time you and I speak, we're either talking about politics being bonkers or interesting, but certainly never boring. Yeah, (laughs) that is absolutely true. And that's probably true of most people in the UK over the last sort of five or six years. Yeah, I mean, you've obviously, you've been really interested in what's happening in Scotland, uh, which we can come on to. But in a way, with Trump going, are you one of the few people that's very sad to see him going because it cuts off a bit of your livelihood? (laughs) I did, you know, it's like... um, it's almost like having your character killed off in a in a soap opera. But I play other characters as well. So I've still got Boris and Starmer and various others that I impersonate. But Trump has been a unique character, really, in terms of my comedy act for the past four years. And I, I've never really impersonated a politician that's been so much fun to do before. Um, but politics has a, has a way, certainly in the last few years, of, of constantly giving us new, fresh and insane characters. So I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that as one door closes, another one opens. Do you think I know? I mean, you and I, me maybe more than you, I'm old enough to remember when Spitting Image um, first went off our screens. And lots of people felt it was because politics had got a bit boring. You know, le- politicians of the left aren't terribly funny, are they? I don't know. I had a lot of fun with Corbyn, so I'm not sure. I mean, That's true. Yeah, you know, far left. Yeah, Ed, Ed Miliband was kind of, I got a lot of mileage out of Ed Miliband. Um, I'm not sure if it's a left-right thing. I mean, I think when Spitting Image ended the first time, it did coincide perhaps with the Tories coming towards an end. Um, but it was also that the show had run for a very long time. And I think any comedy that runs and runs and runs eventually... Um, I guess gravity catches up with you. Not necessarily that the quality diminishes or anything, but there aren't that many long-running comedy shows. There aren't that many long-running TV shows full stop. So um, I'm not sure it's necessarily that uh, you can't lampoon the left as much as the right, although maybe audiences are more likely to watch comedy shows that lampoon the right. I don't know. But I think, you know, I've always been of the view that there are plenty of characters on left, right and centre, regardless of who's in government. I, I think there's always plenty to go at. So hopefully this incarnation of Spitting Image will, will run and run and run. Who's your favourite character at the moment? Oh, Trump. Trump is, you can't, <laughs> you know, I, when I first started doing political stand-up and touring it around, it's all been in the last 10 years, really. It was the coalition I was doing, Cameron and Clegg and Ed Miliband. And it was fun and it was, you know, there was a certain market for it. Trump and Boris have just made it really the, the public desire to see those two people specifically lampooned and um, kind of attacked comedically is, is unlike anything I've ever known. There's such a desire. People really enjoy seeing those people mocked. So really the last four or five years has just been fantastic um, in, for doing them. And, and, and just on like a basic comedic level, Trump's voice is ludicrous. You know, it's David Cameron and Nick Clegg and Tony Blair and Rishi Sunak, you know, they all kind of sound, they're all kind of similar voices, whereas Trump is just this other world of madness. So much as though his politics are the total opposite to mine, for comedy, he has been... Uh, sadly, I have kind of have to admit it. He's been great fun to take the mick out of. Do you get into his character? I mean, obviously you're doing his voice, but do you have to try and get into who he is? Yeah, I think whenever you impersonate someone, it's not just about doing the voice, it's about saying the sort of things it's conceivable they would say in any given situation. So in a way, you kind of learn how to fake 
what their answers would be. And in a weird way, I guess then, when you put on the voice, you kind of think like them. So obviously Trump is highly defensive, is uh, vain, is uh, really sensitive, really thin-skinned. And that comes across, you know... he reassures himself during his speeches in a way I've never heard any politician of, of any persuasion ever do it. You know, he will do those things where I say, and we're getting great results, by the way, and I know we are, and, and a lot of people are telling me, and I do know that, by the way, and I do know. These are things that I do know. And you think no one else feels the need to kind of reassure themselves. So whenever you're playing that, you... As the words come out of your mouth, you kind of the emotion that, that goes with them is kind of there. So, it I, I think it does give you a kind of small insight into the way that their brain works. And uh, with Trump, definitely, he's uh, he's a petty and um, sensitive man. So, so, because you're having to study his voice and what he's saying, I mean, certainly over the last week, or certainly since the election results, I mean, what what did have you felt anything different in the way he's talked? Oh, absolutely. I thought that uh, the speech he gave in the press room, you know, when we hadn't seen him for about a day and a half after the election, was one of the most interesting because he's someone who really relies... He's a confidence player. So even when he's talking rubbish, if he really believes it or sounds like he believes it, when his confidence is high, and that's usually at his rallies, when he's surrounded by people that adore him, that's when he really sells it. It was a rigged election and they're going to steal it. You know, all these conspiracy theories. And he really belts it out. They're going to steal this election, the rigged system. And it kind of, you know, it doesn't make me any more likely to believe it or you, I'm sure. But but he sounds like he believes it. When you saw him exposed in, in that White House briefing room, and I thought it's probably the first time, you know, so much of his personality, the way he views himself has to be about his success. He, he's nothing without it. And I thought it was the first time he felt that he'd faced the media, faced the world as a loser. And he was still saying the same sort of things that he said, but there was no conviction in it. It is a rigged election. And we're looking into, many people, by the way, have evidence of this. They're looking with binoculars and all that sort of thing. And it, it just, it struck me how, I mean, it's a terrible act anyway, but how it really doesn't work without the, when he doesn't believe it, it really doesn't work. And it really felt like he was going through the motions. And that is the first time in his incarnation as a politician that, that I've seen that. And I think that said so much about him. You, you could tell at that point, he, he felt beaten and the words were very hard for him to say. Did you feel sorry for him? Oh, absolutely not. No, crikey. <laughs> you know, usually in normal, when you're talking about mainstream politicians, I think it's really hard. And obviously from a British perspective, you always kind of feel when someone loses a general election and they go, you know, even if you didn't vote for them, Ed Miliband or William Hague, you know, when people stand down, you kind of go, all right, fair dues, you know, uh, but with Trump, it's something completely different. Uh, so no, uh, there's a real satisfaction in it because he has he has shown so little empathy at all throughout his life, let alone during his presidency. This is the first time something has has gotten to him. And and anyway, you know the the things he's done and the way he's behaved really are well. They may well indeed be illegal. So no, I I, I didn't have any sympathy for him at all. I just thought it was fantastic telly. The problem is that he still garnered such huge support, Matt. I mean, I guess that's the the conundrum for people like you and I, that we still go, well, you know, he may be something that we just find abhorrent, but, you know, a lot of people voted for him. 
They did, and that's a, that's a huge challenge for, for Joe Biden and for the Democrats to understand. I mean, obviously, huge amounts of people voted for Joe Biden as well, so that's, you know, this all has to be kind of taken in together. Um, and I, one of the things I find fascinating about all this is I think so many people would look at that and go, well, that, that is a kind of uncrossable river. You know, there is no bridge you can construct to get the 70 million that voted for Trump and the 75 million that voted for Biden to kind of agree on. But I, I don't agree with that. I think it's not just about listening to the concerns of angry people. I think there are things, and I think it's a challenge for Labour in the UK as well, is how do you, um, you know, put across a, a, a prospectus that appeals to, uh, you know, places like Mansfield, those what used to be called the Red Wall, uh, as well as uh, as well as appealing to people in more metropolitan areas, and I think you you kind of have to you have to tell a story. You have to find things that everyone has in common because ultimately, and I think political people kind of miss this sometimes. Most people are used to getting on with people they disagree with, and they're also used to sometimes changing their mind on certain things and just going along with stuff. And I think the public are better at this than politicians, and sometimes political people. We all have friends in our friendship groups that think things that we think is perhaps even beyond the pale, but we have left-wing friends, right-wing friends, yes friends, no friends, remain and leave friends. Um, I think sometimes it's only politicians that struggle to think of ways to, to bring those things together. But I think actually in a way the, the public are better at it than, than the politicians are. Although you might be struggling to find something to agree with with uh, Trump. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, I mean, there are certain things, obviously, but I, I guess Trump voters... Um, you know, I th sometimes it is. It, these are these are sort of you have to also win hearts and minds. You know, and that anger. I mean, in the end, people don't stay angry forever. Some people will, um, but in the end, anger is a kind of relatively short-term political uh, energy because it becomes exhausting, and you only need to look at any kind of extreme movement to know that in the end people end up leaving because they, you need more than that in the end you're looking the, the anger is because you're not getting something and it, and in the end you realize that anger itself won't provide it either and you you sort of emerge exhausted from it and and i think in the end people end up coming around to more reasonable things which is why the biden victory is so important because once you have moderate people back in office and Hopefully, he can actually deliver for people, which is crucial, but also talk to those people, which I think is a big part of it. It's not always about policy. It is about tone and the way you talk about and do things. Um, and I think Biden actually has probably quite good instincts for that sort of thing. I think I think you're right on that. I suppose what worries me a, a little bit about the, the left in particular or the liberals is that you look back and Hillary Clinton called Trump supporters deplorables. So sometimes it's about not liking the people that you actually want to vote for you. I mean, that's very true. And, that, and that, I think that really applies to, to Labour across the UK, is that at the last election, it didn't really feel like they were particularly keen on the country they were seeking to govern. I think it's really hard for Hillary because obviously she was treated so badly and was um, called all sorts of things. You know, they, they would have put her in jail if they could. And that that is severe. So... I kind of don't blame them for feeling that way about them. But of course, once you give it voice publicly, people don't get that you're talking about perhaps Trump and his close circle. The people who vote for him take that personally as well. So that was a real lesson in, uh, in it's fine to sort of think those things, but expressing them when everyone can hear them is uh, is not a good idea. Do you think what he's doing now, I mean, still whipping things up in a way that we we may feel is 
very ungracious and he should just leave the stage. Do you think it's part of a strategy that you just keep whipping those people up because there will be somebody else comes behind him? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think, uh, you know, he will have to leave the White House <laughs> in January, but he's going to set up his own TV station. I have no doubt that he will do that and that that will become a, a kind of a propaganda factory that he'll be pumping stuff out on. And if you if news reports are, are to be believed, either Ivanka or Donald Jr. or someone like that will, will take the mantle up in 2024. So that sort of politics isn't dead, absolutely. And that, that's really concerning is that that hard... I mean, some people would call it far right, but that that certainly hard right populist American nationalist stuff is is not going to go away, and it, it it kind of has a formidable figurehead in him. Uh, so that is really worrying. And of course, there is a precedent for a political leader leaving and setting up in uh, TV that might be seen as propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> Who could you possibly be talking about? I, you know, if we go, if we move smoothly on, if you like, then to to Scottish politics, I mean, I, I suppose there's an issue of what what do ex leaders do? What do ex leaders of countries do? Well, I think it really reveals their true personality. Actually, once they go, because I think in the pursuit of power, sometimes you have to be disciplined. But always, really, you have to show your very best self. Um, in order to gain high office. Afterwards, I think it kind of shows what people were prepared to do. So I think, um, you know, thinking at a UK level, I think John Major's had a very gracious post-prime ministerial existence where it's pretty quiet and he pops up on important things like Brexit and, and particularly around the Irish issue where he's been very diplomatic and, and uh, an important voice. Tony Blair obviously felt that he still had to be at the centre of things and has set up a, a you know, a, an institute that has done a lot of research that was very helpful on on masks and things. So, and that kind of made sense. You know, Blair was still quite young when he left and he was a particular type of leader. With Salmond, obviously, going to work for Russia today, I think... <laughs> just confirmed people's fears about his instincts. And the, uh, and actually, there was a kind of shamelessness about it that was quite shocking because he's a really talented politician and a really talented communicator. Um, so it, it was kind of simultaneously absolutely believable that he would go and do something like that. But still kind of amazing and still kind of amazing given where the SNP as a party is popularity-wise in Scotland and how close it is to achieving its ultimate founding aim, that in a weird way, he's kind of put, he's jeopardised it by doing what he's done, which um, I think, again, tells you that he probably places his own personal career, perhaps even over that of, of the one thing that has driven him on in politics, which, uh, you know, every movement has these characters and these individuals. But I think... It's the first time since the SNP has been really popular and has held office that we've kind of seen it happen to them. I suppose as well, though, there was nowhere for him to go, particularly. You know, the SNP won't send anyone to the House of Lords for lots of um, ideological reasons. So there is a difficulty about where you place ex-political leaders. Yeah, but I think if you stop working for Russia today, I mean, yeah. surely there was... He could have set up a think tank or or a charity or something like that. You just think they're probably better. Although, you know what? It may be easier said than done. Perhaps he couldn't get the funding. I'm sure he touted the Alex Salmon show to other broadcasters who obviously didn't want it. Um, 
and I gather Russia today plays very well, so it, it may well have it may well have made more sense to, to do it there. But I think you still, you know, if you really care about the the cause that you were serving, you know, in Salmon's case, a, a, a very short time in between him departing and setting that up. I think you really have to think about what you do next if you really care about, you know, I have no doubt that he really cares about Scottish independence, but his behaviour since has made me question how much he prizes that compared to his own kind of personal enrichment or profile. And that's what always surprises me about politicians. And obviously all parties have been through this. You know, if you look at Labour's problem in the last five, if you look at Labour in Scotland, you know, Richard Leonard is taking Labour into an election where, it's going to be really bad for them. Uh, and he could stand aside and let someone else have a go, but he won't. And uh, I guess in a way, Alex Salmond is just the, uh, you know, one of many embodiments across the political spectrum of, of, of politicians who um, <laughs> look a- look after themselves first. I mean, to be fair to Richard Leonard, Matt, it's not the first time that Labour in Scotland go into an election <laughs> expecting to do badly. That's true, but... There is a particular, you know, if, if, if there is a particular emphasis on this one, uh, given the political context around independence and, and the urgency and, and the speed around the issue now, and the way that the polling has changed on on the Scottish public's view of independence. So, I think any leader going into uh, an election with the sorts of polling numbers that they have, who who doesn't do the decent thing, I, I sort of question their commitment to the to the overall cause. It's interesting. Before you mentioned Richard, who's a really nice man. Oh, he's lovely. Oh, yeah, I was no going to say to you, do you think how important is it that you just have a whopping ego to be a political leader? And that, I mean, Richard doesn't appear to have that. Well, I mean, I mean, there were so many lovely people in politics. There's so many lovely people in Scottish politics. And this was the debate with John Swinney over the summer where people were saying, but he's a really nice guy. And you're like, but it, the question isn't are people really nice people? It's about their ability to dispatch the their job to the best of their abilities and the effect that has on the public, or indeed in Richard Leonard's case, the party. But I, I kind of struggle with it. I, I mean, I, on the one hand, it seems like a lovely bloke, but he must have quite a significant ego to still want to lead Labour into the sorts of results it looks like they're going to get. I mean, I can't think of anything more egotistical than that of leading a party to certain defeat and not letting someone else have a go. But wasn't Corbyn the same? And probably he wouldn't see himself as an egoist, would he? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they might not think of themselves as egotists, but, uh, you know, uh, Corbyn, absolutely. I mean, I think Corbyn is one of the vainest political leaders we've ever seen in UK politics. And there's some stiff competition in that field. But to, to, to crash the car twice... Uh, it really is a, shows astonishing levels of political vanity. So although these people are, are lovely and polite and decent and all the things that we've we've described, it doesn't mean that politically they're not egotistical because I, really, to, to again, when you face the polling numbers that, that, that both Richard Leonard and Jeremy Corbyn faced and, and you don't think that someone else should have a go, what else are we supposed to conclude? I mean, do you feel you know, you, you, your book is called Politically Homeless, isn't it? I mean, yeah. are you beginning to feel more at home now? Um, well, Keir Starmer's a, a, a far better leader, in my opinion, than Jeremy Corbyn. And it seems that, that is an opinion shared across every corner of the United Kingdom. Um, and I think just with basic levels of competence and things, he's, he's clearly an improvement on Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, the way he's handled anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, the fact that that was even ever a problem really reflects shamefully on, on Corbyn and his um, allies. 
But the Labour Party is still an issue for me. Um, and I think Keir Starmer's been very good at kind of showing how it'd be different from Corbyn on anti-Semitism. But really, he has to have a fundamental change of direction. And, and I, I guess myself and others who feel like me are waiting to see exactly what that means. And that, that probably comes after COVID because this is the, the number one priority and that's fair enough. Um, I think it's the first time Labour have had a better candidate for prime minister than the Tories for 10 years. So that's a good thing. I could see myself voting for Labour again, but I don't think I would ever join any political party. I feel like I've been there and done that. Um, I, I don't think it's for me anymore. I think if, I, if I'm going to get involved in something, I really want to throw myself into it. And I can't imagine myself ever being hugely enthusiastic about any one party anymore. Well, because I was going to ask you if you'd be interested ever in elected politics. Oh, God, no. I, I mean, I have <laughs> I have so much respect for people that even stand for any level of office. I think regardless of what party you're from, that it is so exposing and it is so humiliating. And politicians have to have such incredible results. I mean, you know, we're talking about people like Richard Leonard and, and John Swinney and Jeremy Corbyn and that, and, but they are human beings. They may well listen to this podcast. And that's difficult for them because everyone's got an opinion on how they do their job and people they know and like will voice that opinion. That is really hard. And on top of all the other things with social media and the fact that you're public property now, and you can't really have much of a life outside politics, I don't think. Uh, that just doesn't appeal to me in any way. And I think the, the huge rewards that, that come with politics, really getting to change the world or at least change some of it for the better, are real. Um, but I think to do it, you need an extra level of strength. Um, and I don't have it. What do you think makes a leader, makes a good leader? I think an, ab an ability to, I think high emotional intelligence to to have a basic understanding of people, I think is one of the most important things. And, and on top of that, obviously the, the the genuine skills of leadership, being a good communicator, knowing how to talk to different audiences differently and motivate people and, and be a good clear thinker and surround yourself with really talented advisors. I think that's always a good sign of a, of a strong leader is people who hire people that they may perceive to be better than them um, rather than feeling threatened by talent and, and expertise. So I think those things, but fundamentally, I think understanding what motivates people, you know, what, what, what scares people, what, what, what do people hope for? What do people want out of life? And I think so few leaders actually kind of get that uh, uh, party leaders. I think usually once people become, Kind of prime minister or first minister, arguably they've 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 sharpened that antenna. Um, but I think for me that's the main thing is do you actually understand the psychology of the country you're governing? And I don't think Jeremy Corbyn did. I don't think Ed Miliband did. Um, so for me that's always a big thing. I, I actually watch them sometimes and think I don't think you get what people think or why. Yeah. Um, so for me that's always been quite a big thing. I mean, that that particular thing, that thing about empathy, mm. I mean, that's been the dividing line, I guess, in, during COVID between Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, do you think Boris Johnson actually even knows why he wanted power? Oh, entirely for entirely for his own ends. I don't think he, you know, I think sort of his elastic values are well uh, documented. I think he's broadly fairly liberal and that's about it. I think he could sort of be convinced on any issue either way, pretty much, and he'll have a sort of standard Tory view of the world. Um, I just think, you know, I have to remind myself, particularly with Boris Johnson, that a lot of people, 
agree with what he says. And I think that's always a political education for all of us is uh, there will be people that think actually he's handled this quite well, which <laughs> baffles me. Mm. Um, but that kind of odd way of almost trying to nudge the public rather than be explicit, I think is a really odd approach. But I, I have to, based on what I read and the, and the polling I see, I have to accept that there's a quite a, a significant chunk of Britain that kind of thinks he's done the right thing. So even though I may be mystified as to how anyone could see this as a positive, although, you know, if you're being really fair, you'd have to say the furlough scheme was a good idea, you know, argue about the help for self-employed people and other things. But in general, I still am amazed that a Tory government has paid people's wages. So, you know, I guess people get their political messages from from elsewhere not everyone obsesses over it like i do and i always try and remember that is if i was just getting on with my life although of course we've all been forced to obsess over it because of the the briefings and everything you know this has made people far more attentive of politics this year but nevertheless i think a lot of people will go oh well you know it wasn't their fault they paid my wages i think you know i don't think you can underestimate that there'll still be a chunk of people out there that think they've handled it quite well and i realize that sounds astonishing and when you're impersonating him, is it the same kind of thing that you get with Trump, that there's a, a bit of a stream of consciousness, he goes off into other areas and you don't quite understand why? Well, yeah, and I think it's more constru- it's more deliberate with, with Boris than it is with, with uh, the Donald. He, uh, he definitely has created more of a persona. It's um, contrived and, then, is it? Do you think? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you know, it's a contrived version of him. It's not like you know, it's not like <laughs> he's got a broad Yorkshire accent or anything like that. It is. No, a that'd be worrying, of, wouldn't it? <laughs> but he, you know, that whole he's quite theatrical on purpose. You know, if you watch him ask a question he doesn't like, he'll frown really early during the question, even before the interviewers stopped asking it. He'll do this sort of big theatrical frown as if say, "What?" You know, almost like a child wasn't me um and you know he loves all the i don't think you know the sort of mumbling stuff (laughs) oddly is an act that people quite like and and there is it has comedic value i think it's (laughs) not the sort of thing i desire in a prime minister or world leader but as a kind of comedy act you can see why it works on some people and it's not that people don't realise it's an act. I think people realise it's an act, and some of them actually quite like it. And um, so uh, there's the uh, come off it, uh, <clears throat> and you do all all that type of thing, and the uh, mumbling uh, and the energy. Yes, it's going to be great, and we're going to get we're going to get this done, and we're going to have a vaccine, uh, uh, and then he will sort of slow down. Come and there's all that, uh, and then sometimes there's the thing where. It's almost like he's got two thoughts in mind. Or it's like he's gone into a room and forgotten what he's gone in for, and he can't quite... And he'll often do this with acronyms. Okay, I, mean, I want to pay tribute to our brilliant uh, national... NHS, the European... And it's almost like he can't quite place his hand on the thing. But I think I think he's figured out that, that there's something weirdly charming about uh, that act. And, you know, if it's just an after-dinner speech, fine, but this is a prime minister, and I think uh, I think people value far clearer communication from their leaders. It's one of the problems with Boris Johnson that he actually thinks he is funny. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah, he thinks he's funny. And, you know, to be fair to him, lots of people have reinforced that over the years. 
the Tory party for years, he was, he would, you know, brings the house down and still does. And there are moments when he makes me laugh. He does have some comedic ability, but again, <laughs> he's the prime minister. So it, it's not that it's inappropriate for a prime minister or for any leader to occasionally be funny. But if that is your, if that is a priority for you, then I worry, I worry about what that says about, about his psychology is that, Again, it's about him. He's so desperate to be liked, and you can see it. You can see that throughout this whole thing, he's always wanted to be bringing good news. And I understand that instinct. And there's something, in a way, that reflects quite well on him because he wants to be the guy telling us good news because he likes it when people like him. But ultimately, what is far more valuable is the truth. And people can plan their lives better if you are a bit straighter with them about how long things are going to take or how long we're going to have to lock down for. And I think he has really misunderstood the public mood. I think the vast majority of people actually would rather just lock down and get it done. As long as there is the help from the state there for the industries that can't work and for the people that can't. I think he's listened to too many of the voices on the right of the Tory party, people like Ian Duncan Smith, who will convince him that everyone's straining at the leash to get back, which of course we are once it's safe to do so. But I think he's fundamentally misread the psychology of the country. I often wonder as well, do you think he he listens when people are saying things like, which they're doing all the time, that Nicola Sturgeon is a much better communicator? And I mean, actually, the results of the policies have been pretty bad as well. But But do you think he actually listens to that and thinks, well, what makes her a better communicator than me? Mm, I, I think he's the sort of person who will go, oh, come off it, come on. No, 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 Nicholas Sturgeon. I think he's, I imagine he's fairly dismissive of any uh, uh, adversary. Uh, and I imagine the same goes for Keir Starman. I think he's fairly self-confident. He thinks he's hit upon this recipe that will, will continually bring success, which is <laughs> that people in so-called red wall areas uh, will be just happy with rule Britannia and a union jack. And then that you don't have to think about it much beyond that. And I think, that may have worked against Corbyn, but things have changed. Um, I think he thinks he's the kind of great communicator. I think he obviously models himself on Churchill. Um, and I think his calculation will be that once there's a vaccine, that solves a lot of his problems. And that people kind of like a guy who's fairly entertaining. And I, I don't think he would really... I don't think he would ever look at Sturgeon and, and try and copy or, or, or learn from her. Couldn't wear the heels, probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, although I'd love to see that. <laughs> that would be a comedy sketch in itself. Yeah. But I don't think that's any reflection of Nicola Sturgeon. I think he probably, I don't think, you know, apart from, Ch literally apart from Churchill, I don't think he thinks he's got anything to learn from any speaker. Oh. Um, on that, I mean, when you meet people that you impersonate, have you had anybody that just finds it too hard, that they can't laugh at themselves? Um, not that they can't laugh. I think they just, it freaks them out. So um, Blair was said, I, you know, I never, I, I remember seeing you impersonate me a few years ago and I never thought that I sounded like that. But, you know, my kids were like, dad, you know, you really do sound like that. So, you know, and it's, of course, with him, it's the facial expression and everything. I think that kind of freaks him out. Haig, I think Haig kind of, who's one of the funniest people I've met. And it was actually only meeting him that I realised there was another thing he did and it really improved my impression, was that he kind of hums in between his words. So he would talk about being a minister for John Major. 
uh, I kind of just have this sort of basic thing on the Hague impression is that you go very, very low and then very high. And he just kind of sat there and went, hmm, yes, oh, I suppose so. And didn't, I think he kind of thought it was a good impression, but... I mean, what do you say to it? I think it puts them on the spot a bit, and I think it, they, it almost feels like you've read their mind. It, it, it's, not, it's not just like doing a caricature in the street. It's also like I've recognised the way you speak. So I think in a weird way they go, oh, God, he knows the way I think as well. And I think that can be quite unsettling. Terrifying. Um, <laughs> well, well, so if you were Donald Trump then, what words would you be saying right now? I think Trump will be in total denial. We There is no way I definitely won that election and I think we need to find every bit of electoral fraud. He will be convinced. He will be absolutely convinced that there is fraud out there. Um, he, he, he won't be able to bring himself to concede that he's lost, I think. Or if he does, it'd be very, very hard. It will be on, you know, he, he will have, people will have absolutely convinced him to, to do it. It's interesting. I spoke to Anthony Scaramucci last week and his theory was that uh, Trump will actually become quite compliant at some stage because he's petrified of being prosecuted after he's left so he will <laughs> he will then stop being quite nice to joe biden because he won't want them gunning for him legally uh which i thought was quite an interesting you know it's entirely self-interested it's entirely motivated by self-interest so if you are trump in a way that's the logical thing to do is once you've stopped all this you have to flip at some point from denying that you've lost the election to then ingratiating yourself in some way towards your successor so that you don't end up in prison. And have you tried Joe Biden yet? Not yet, no. I mean, there's a on, on spitting image, someone else does him. So in a way that not made me lazy, but I was like, oh, someone else is doing Biden. But now, obviously for my next tour and stuff, I'll have to have a Biden. So uh, it was only at the weekend I was watching him thinking, I'm going to have to have to pull my finger out now. But he speaks so slowly. You know, you watch him for a minute, and he says about five words. So I'm going to have to put in, he's going to require more hours. At least Trump speaks quickly so you can pick him up fast. Would you, do you tackle Nicola Sturgeon, for instance? There's a sentence. Um, <laughs> do you ever, do you think about doing women's voices? Yeah, I used to do a sturgeon, but I could never really get it right. Actually, I only noticed recently she's got a very gentle lisp. Um, it's just a, there's just a small lisp there. Uh, but I, I've always struggled with, I think because I've got naturally quite a deep... Someone told me I had a beefy voice. Beefy voice. Beefy, yeah. <laughs> uh, that I kind of struggle to do uh, uh, lighter voices. Um so I've always struggled with Sturgeon. I kind of did a... F the problem is you can kind of do a Scottish accent, but in a way that's really dissatisfying. And on a tour, the SNP stuff always goes better in Scotland than it's going to go in England. So and they're the people who really know what she sounds like. So, yeah, I, I, I've, I've really struggled to, to, to nail a Sturgeon impression, really. I could do a kind of... I could get away with it down here. But when I'm doing Edinburgh or Glasgow or Aberdeen, it has to be so much better. So I kind of occasionally wimp out of doing it. But I had a salmon, but my salmon, I got salmon really late. Well, well, that kind of, uh, well, Mandy, ask a very good uh, question. Uh, sort of weird, uh, weird, uh, that weird, it's almost like he's got a <laughs> snooker ball in his mouth. Or somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of, I got him very late. Some of them take ages. Um, yeah. 
but yes, I, I need to redouble my efforts or, or you know, or whoever knows and, and who, who will the next first minister of Scotland be and when will that happen? I need well, to start thinking about who her successor might be, perhaps. Any thoughts? I think Angus Robertson's a very strong uh, candidate, isn't he, now that he's got uh, the Edinburgh Central selection. But, you know, he needs to get himself into Holyrood. But he's a he's a big figure, I guess. So he would be, uh, he should he's probably someone I should be working on. Have you, oh, you're working on that. That's fine. Well, I will start. Yes, I've kind of, yeah. I've got a lot of homework on, on people I need to get cracking on impressions with. Have you tried Ian Blackford? You know what? I do, yeah, actually, Blackford, I did try a bit of a... The people of Scotland, I guess he's always got that kind of... He's quite You're always shrill. shouting, man. Let's do a Scot. <laughs> Let's shout. Well, I, I suppose Trump's Scottish as well, so yeah. God, don't give us that anymore. No, but I do, We're I, building a wall. <laughs> I have a range. I can do Scottish accents, and I, I know the difference between the kind of... I always love doing the, uh, I saw an easily uh, Jamesy Carter. Well, I've seen these, but you are. I love that kind of uh, nasally Glaswegian. So I would never try and just go, well, I'm from Scotland, and everyone seems like that, you know, because that's just, that's basically racist. But um, I do enjoy being able to do the different, I love the uh, oh, Charles Kennedy uh, for a whale, you know, that lovely wee. Uh, there was a kind of vocal fray where you just get a little bit extra at the back of the throat. He had a beautiful voice. I was very lucky to to meet him a couple of times. Um, I chased him as a chicken, actually, during a by-election in Leicester, <laughs> dressed as a chicken. Yeah, it was as you do. Jobs for the Labour Party. And I think the first day I turned up, or the second day, I had to sort of get near him and clock. He said, probably not the best thing to tell you. I think I may have eaten your mother at KFC last night. <laughs> he had like a different chicken joke every time I saw him. He was out of this world. So... Um, Excellent. Yes, I, I need to. I need to add a broader range to my uh, Scottish repertoire. There's always Sir Sean. Well, that's it. But R.I.P. Yeah, exactly. It, it, would, it would sort of feel more macabre. I mean, I suppose sports people were always kind of my bit. You know, Jim White, uh, transfer deadline dear, and always sounding surprised. He's got a great voice, Jim White. So he was. Uh, he, he's still one of mine. But I need to do more. I need to do more Scottish politics. Well, we'll hopefully see you soon up here anyway. Oh, well, I should have been up in... I was meant to do June. Edinburgh and Glasgow in May and June. Yeah. And obviously the Holyrood Garden Party. Yeah. I was meant to do the Edinburgh Festival. Then I was meant to, I think last weekend or the weekend before, be back in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Aberdeen. So I've missed out on at least three or four. Well, we're hoping for March now, aren't we? Oh, it'd be great. I mean, the garden party is one of the highlights of my year. It's so much fun. And MP4. Yeah, brilliant. (laughs) They're so funny. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's It's great. You know what? Of all the political events that I've been to, it's the most joyous. And it's so reassuring because from a distance, Scottish politics can look like the most ferocious part of the UK. But actually, doing that event every year has made me realise... People still all get on and laugh with each other, and and you know it's everyone kind of knows each other in Scottish politics. So there's a real, even though it has its very harsh contentions, there is a there is a spirit and a camaraderie around it that is really reassuring for whatever happens next. Um, I always come away feeling uh, kind of reassured and and like emotionally recharged. Really, it's such a happy event that I, I think in a way it should be live streamed so that the whole country can see it. 
and go, actually, whatever happens, we'll all be fine. Yeah. Never getting a photo booth with Annie Wales is all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Good advice. All right, Matt. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so now we have the rant of the week. That's a chance for Mandy Rhodes to get something off her chest. Mandy, what do you have this week that's been bothering you? Well, I am going to stop calling it rant of the week because I'm not always ranting, I don't think. Well, that's but true. I, I mean, your, your problem is I'm introducing the section. Well, you, you think I rant. It's all yeah. about perception, to be honest, Liam. Um I, you say ranting, I say just kind of philosophically exploring issues of the day. But um, I suppose this is a bit of a rant. So we're now into darker nights and I'm now experiencing my daily cycle back home um, in darkness. And I really think pedestrians need to start wearing headlights. So, <laughs> so I, well, you wouldn't go out on the road, would you, without lights on your car? I know they're pedestrians, but they're walking in the cycle lane in Holyrood Park at night and they're wearing dark clothing. And I, I literally, last night, I think I stopped four or five times before I because I would have definitely cycled into these people. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask if you've had any collisions. If if I haven't yet. Yeah, near, near misses. And I'm yeah. wearing a lot of lights and a very smart, reflective jacket. I mean, you could get in real trouble for that, Mandy. Media mogul and collision. There's probably, yeah, I think that's happened with others. But there's, um, I think, on a style point of view, Liam, mm-hmm. I think once we come out of la- lockdown, <laughs> I'll need to rethink my wardrobe. All right, okay. Um, what, in what way? Well, I just, I wouldn't be wearing these things in normal circumstances. Reflective, no, yeah. reflective jackets, <laughs> headlamps on my head. Mm-hmm. Well, you could um, do a Christmassy thing. You could, you know, get them some tinsel or something. Yeah. I think I used to be quite stylish, but I think it's just, uh, do you think a politician can do anything about that? I think that would be a tremendous breach of your of your private life if a politician started telling you how to dress. I mean, for what it's worth, I'd just ban all the cars and then you'd have the road. I suppose Around so. Arthur's Seat, I mean, specifically, you know, at the start of lockdown, they stopped all the traffic and it yeah. was great. People were like, it was like a utopia, I would say. Well, we've actually, the magazine that goes to print this week, we're doing quite a lot on things like 20-minute neighbourhoods, where you would live in a neighbourhood where almost everything is within 20 minutes. And, you know, again, we we keep talking about this, but during lockdown, life has changed. People have got a much better appreciation for their local environment. And for me, it's been about cycling and, and discovering how, bloody awful that can be sometimes Hmm. um and I, i do hope that when we come out of this those lessons are not unlearned Hmm. That's not quite the same as politicians acting, is it? That lessons are not unlearned. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. But politicians definitely need to do something about that. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. 
We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>